Happy Monday, friends, and welcome back to the Mark Claire Show. Today, I'm going to be sharing a conversation I had with the great Courtney Turner of the Courtney Turner Podcast. We did this one this past Thursday live on YouTube. I'm doing a few more of these lately. I want you to check out my YouTube channel if you have not subscribed yet. Uh, the Mark Claire Show, real easy to find. I'll also link to it over at markclaire.com, M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. We dive all the way into a subject Courtney has done a lot of research on. That is the Tavistock Institute. But yes, follow me on YouTube. I'll do more live streams. Uh, and of course, those live streams, you got to catch them live. They're only going to be up for a little while. And then I'm going to take them down, repackage them, uh, put them together as early releases for my patrons. Of course, you can join the Mark Claire show on Patreon, on Subscribestar, on Rockfin, all sorts of ways. You can get early access and extended access extended content from these episodes because every single episode I do an extra 30 minutes or so with the guests with Courtney in the smoke-filled room. Today we discuss, look at this lineup, check out this lineup, the Epstein client list, Miami Nephilim, and yes, Jewish tunnels in New York. You get that all in the full version of this podcast. You can subscribe in many different ways. Like I said, Patreon, subscribe, star, Rockfin. Check out all the links you need over at markclair.com. Enjoy today's conversation with Courtney Turner. All right, friends, welcome back to a live edition of the Mark Claire Show. Apparently, the kids like it when you do it live, so we're doing it live, and I'm here today with the host of the Courtney Turner Podcast. You guessed it, it's Courtney Turner. Courtney, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and uh, you know, rumor has it, this is your is this your fifth podcast you've done today? Is that right? Yes. Is that what I heard? All right, well, <laughs> yeah. save the best. I'm not going to say we're the best for last, any of that stuff. I'm not going to imply that, but it may be possible. I guess we'll see. Yeah, it might and, be. Um, you know, the impetus for the show today, Courtney, uh, this is, you know, ever since I started diving into the world of, you know, geopolitics, conspiracy, propaganda, that stuff, this this word kept pop, kept popping up. And a lot of, you know, hosts and commentators would just kind of use it, um, you know, just kind of toss it out there like we all knew what it was. But for a long time, I didn't really know what it was. And that was the Tavistock Institute. And the more little rabbit holes I go down, the more I would find myself continuing to bump into this same institute or institutes that are connected to it. And this is a sub that you've done a super deep, deep dive on. So I invited you on to dive into it with us today. Awesome. Yeah, well, it's, it is definitely a monster. It's got its tentacles everywhere, as you seem to have discovered. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so why don't we just start wherever you make think it makes the most sense. I mean, there's the creation of the Institute itself, but it's taken on you know several iterations. And then there's obviously a backstory before that. So where do you think is the best place to start here? Well, I typically start like kind of at the backstory because I think it's really important for people. Um, and I, I think it's always good for people to understand how things have kind of developed and morphed and, you know, the name change game that they do. Um, but also to understand kind of how the genesis of it, like how it came to be um, and really why initially, at least ostensibly uh, on the surface, why. I think there were many more covert reasons why. But so I typically start like with Wilhelm Wundt. Um, who was known oh, that's as... A, that's a name right there. Yeah, that, that is the name. <laughs> um, are you familiar with Wilhelm Bond? Only from hearing you talk about this. Okay, so I bring him up because he is known as like the father of psychology. Uh, now in America, the American father of psychology is William James, who was actually a disciple of Wilhelm Bond. And Wilhelm Bond, uh, he himself had no like formal education or training, but... He trained many people at Leipzig uh, University, and there were names like you would probably know, like uh, 
put, let's see, like Pavlov and like a... Oh, the guy with the dog. Yes, that would be, <laughs> that would be it. Uh, Stanley G. Hall, who was a mentor to John Dewey. Um, and John Dewey was very instrumental in exporting the uh, three-tier pressure model of education to the United States. That uh, We uh, now, you know, have uh, dumbing down the minds of all of us. And uh, that was literally designed to breed compliance and obedience and to dumb, to eradicate critical thinking. It was actually created after the Battle of Jena in uh, 1807, and uh, they lost the battle. This was during the Napoleonic Wars. They lost the battle, and they determined that they had lost this battle because the soldiers rebelled, and they realized they couldn't have rebellious soldiers. Therefore, they must eradicate critical thinking. And so thus this Prussian model of education was born. And so Dewey uh, was very instrumental in uh, bringing that over. Um, and what else can I tell you? There were a couple of other interesting connections with... Uh, As, uh, one of our commentators, now that we're live, we get chats. He's, he, uh, Chad claims he's also responsible for a terrible decimal system. So I don't know if that's the same that Dewey or not, true. but it is. It is the same Dewey. <laughs> the Dewey decimal system. That all is right, correct. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> this is the benefit of being live. We get these little tidbits. We, we get all sorts of uh, input. Yes. Thank you, Chad. Um, I, my, I have a really funny story about that. My, uh, I was talking about how I used to use the Dewey decimal system and my sister didn't believe me. My sister's six years younger than me. And she was like, that's like an archaic thing that, you know, it's like ancient times. And I'm like, you mean the thing that your sister <laughs> used to write her college thesis? And she was like, you did not. She didn't believe me, but I did <laughs> because I'm older than her. Um, so, yeah, so yeah we, I feel we, like the people, the kids growing up now without libraries probably aren't aren't going to know the Dewey system quite as much. No, they're probably going to be like, what on earth are you? Oh, I guess they still have libraries, but it's probably, I, I feel like they're not there as much. I spent a lot, nerd alert, I spent a lot of time in the library when I was a kid. I did too. I spent a ton of time in the library. There um, probably is a direct correlation between people that spent a, a, a higher than average amount of time in the library and how many of those are currently podcasters. <laughs> that, that is probably true, yes. Well, I think our research skills were honed then. <laughs> um, so yeah, so Wilhelm Vonch, he taught people like uh, Pavlov and like uh, uh, Stanley G. Hall and uh, who was a mentor to Dewey. And he, his, he was a descendant of, uh, I always get this name wrong, that's why I'm looking for how to spell it. It's something to get it wrong. I just can't really pronounce it. It's a German name. Yeah, Kirschenrat, I think Casimir Wilhelm Vonch. I, I think that's how you say it. But anyway, he was known as a, Raphael in the Illuminati. And uh, that's his Illuminati name? Yeah, Raphael. So, Not a bad one. I mean, yeah, yeah. One of the I'm Ninja in. Turtles. So uh, is this, this is a, a side tangent, of course, as well. Yes. But, you know, obviously the Illuminati, are you talking about the actual like Bavarian Illuminati? Like yeah, the real I'm one? Yeah, the so actual Bavarian okay. Illuminati. So and he, there he, is. So this, all of psychology then even goes back to this grand conspiracy. Yes. Exactly, which is, this is why I start with Wilhelm Wundt, um, because I, I think that is actually quite relevant to know the origins of the field of psychology, uh, which, of course, Tavistock was very instrumental in creating the, the field of social science, essentially. And uh, so I do think that it is actually quite relevant. Um, so yeah, so he was, the, his, his descend, he was a descendant of Raphael and the Illuminati. And then um, he, so he taught uh, 
William James, who, of course, is known as the American father of psychology. And he created the first PhD, like he created the PhD system in the United States. Just on the subject of, of the PhD, do you think um, the, the creation of that PhD was that, that sort of title? Was that sort of a gatekeeping method that was being used within first, I guess, within this realm of psychology to sort of make sure that the correct ideas, the correct people, the correct sort of uh, philosophy is being put out there under the name of psychology? Yeah, I do think so. I think it was a uh, also a, a very instrumental in gatekeeping. Um, so now it's you, you're being indoctrinated and gatekeeping, right? So it's only the people who have been indoctrinated can now have access to the information. Because right, if you don't have the PhD, you could just be, who knows who you could be? You could just be some quack. But once you have that, we know your opinions have been certified and you're on the right track. You can tell people about things now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so he was known as a, yeah, Kirschenrat, Casimir, Wilhelm Wundt, and he taught, so he teaches, uh, so John Dewey was also the co-author of the Illumina, of the uh, Humanist Manifesto, uh, which is very, kind of, has very similar kinds of uh, tenets and belief systems to the Illuminati. So his grandfather, Kirschenrat Carl, Carl Casimir Wundt, and it was Raphael. And the, the evidence for that can be found in the Illuminati Provincial Report uh, from Utica, September 1782. And yeah, so the other students were Pavlov, Stanley G. Hall, who was the mentor to John Dewey, the co-author of Humanist Manifesto in 1933. Some of the core principles were that ethics are anonymous, uh, situational, very similar to Weishaupt's notion of do without wilt, which was also Crowleyan. And so uh, already, I mean, we're 10 minutes into this conversation and already that's how long it took to find the connection to the occult, because that's one thing that I always run into whenever you're <laughs> going down a pathway of intelligence agencies or propaganda or or the occult. I mean, they always run into each other. So it's n not surprising. Not surprising at all. Um, I just wanted to find like the direct of what I was really looking for was the Illuminati Provincial Report because I feel like people will always question, well, how do you know that? Where's the proof for this? Where's the evidence, right? And uh, it probably gets dropped already, yeah. Record um, time. And so I always like to bring the the receipts and I'm like, give people where they can go dig for themselves. Uh, so the the rest of it, I pretty much memorized, but I, I don't always memorize the journal names. So Fair enough. <laughs> I wanted to bring that. I know zero um, of these things, so you're ahead of me. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, the, uh, so now that's all like in the late 1800s. So, uh, like, Wilhelm Wundt is like 1879, 1880, around there. And then 1885, the American Society for Psychical Research is founded. And this is uh, William James is a founding member. And uh, members, other like prominent members were people like Sigmund Freud and, and Carl Jung. And they they start the Secret Intelligence Service, which is MI6, the British Intelligence Service, in 1909. This is all related because Tavistock is kind of like a think tank for the intelligence apparatus. Then we get to, of course, 1886. It was late 1800s here. Freud develops what they call the talking cure. This is, of course, just talk therapy, right? This is what we think of as traditional psychology. You go to the therapist, you you talk about your problems, and they called it the talking cure. But this was what became this like signature 
kind of cornerstone of the Tavistock method. And then we get to around 1912, 1914. Uh, this is where the Wellington I'm House. I'm laughing at Chad's comment because it's, I mean, eventually, it, depending on how far we get today, this may happen. So I'm, <laughs> Chad says, please don't ruin James Bond for me. So we'll see. No promises. I no apologize. Promises. Yes. Well, I, I will tell you what was ruined for me was that. So one of the, like, well, I'll get to this, but essentially they created Masterman was uh, appointed to kind of helm up this uh, committee at Wellington House. And this was in the early 1900s. And so what he did was he got together 25 like literary figures of the time um, to create a lot of propaganda, essentially. It was like, you know, authors to write poems and, you know, novels and articles to create propaganda to engage in, uh, in the First World War. So that's most of what this, it was called the British Propaganda Bureau. They created this pro propaganda bureau because Germany had a propaganda bureau, and this is what they always do under the guise of defense, right? The propaganda the other, arms race, right? Yeah, like they have a, you know, it, it's like we're, what's, what's the justification? Oh, well, they have super soldiers, so we have to create super soldiers, I mean, that, right? That was our original justification for well, developing nuclear weapons, too. It was like, oh, the Germans, uh, yeah. if they don't do it, we're going to do it. So, I mean, party yeah. on. Right. And it's always under the guise of defense. The problem is that at least from what I can see when I start diving through history is that it looks like they they claim outwardly that they're doing it to protect us so that we're uh, because they're going to do it. And so we need to have a defense against our enemy. However, oftentimes what happens is that gets weaponized and turned inward against the people that they're supposed to be protecting, which would be us. Um, so they created the the British Propaganda Bureau. And uh, then, so they had this meeting where 25 literary figures, but what I was going to say about like, you know, killing your heroes. So one of them was, that was invited. He actually didn't make it, but he was part of uh, a lot of the propaganda machine in Tavistock was Roger Kipling. And he's like one of my all-time favorites. Like the poem If is still to this day, one of my all-time favorites. It's almost so at the point would, where if, you know, you have a favorite author from the last century or two and favorite works, you're almost, there's greater odds that they are going to be connected to some intelligence agency or propaganda organization or what have you than not. I mean, the, it's almost like the, the real gems are the ones that are have no connection at all. They're very and I don't even rare. know who they are. I'm, I'm afraid to look I, at deeper at some of mine because <laughs> who knows what I'll run into. For sure, for sure. Yeah, so they actually kept the secret that they had this meeting um, and they published something like 1,600 articles, pamphlets, and uh, books and they didn't, it was not revealed until around 1935. That's a long time to keep that secret. So then we have around 1919, we have Edward Bernays becomes the director of the British Propaganda Bureau, also known as the Wellington House, also known as the the lie factory. Uh, they, that was literally like a nickname for it. And he's a double nephew of Sigmund Freud. And he's known as the father of propaganda, the father of PR. Uh, he, although I think William Munzenberg gets left out a lot. He definitely deserves some of the credit there. Literally anybody that you know that works in public relations or, or studied that kind of thing, PR, they are all coming from that school of Bernays ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, well, definitely, I'd say in the West. Um, you know, like I said, I think William Munzenberg had a lot of uh, impact and influence. Absolutely. Uh, so William Munzenberg, actually, there was right after the Bolshevik Revolution, Lenin called a meeting between William Munzenberg, Antonio Gram- Gramsci and Georgi Lukash. And he was very concerned about why, you know, Karl Marx had promised that the revolution would spread throughout the West. And that did not happen. And so he called this meeting between them. And this is found in Antonio Gramsci's grandson's uh, memoirs. And uh, what uh, he said, it was Gramsci who said to Lenin, well, the problem is you're approaching this as an economic problem and that, uh, like an economic revolution. And he said, that's never going to work. You have to infiltrate through the culture. Sounds like he was a libertarian just, for you know, to going going for the economic, just going for the economics. If we just teach him all the economics, this is all okay. going to work out. Like, no, we're going to need some propaganda. Well, he would, yeah, I, you could say that. Or, I mean, that was kind of what Karl Marx was promising, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, it was the, uh, that they were going to rise as the proletariat, it was going to rise up against the bourgeoisie, and that this was just class struggle uh, in terms of economic class warfare. Uh, but it really was Antonio Gramsci who said, no, that you, this is, uh, it has to be done through the culture, you know, that the, economic warfare won't have any power. Like we have to push still- them towards this. It's not just going to play itself out if we don't direct it in some way. Well, yeah. And if people, if there isn't a cultural movement, the economic discrepancies aren't going to be enough to make people rise up if people are still entrenched in their own cultures. Mm-hmm. And the irony of it is that Karl Marx's first book, The Communist Manifesto, was actually all about uh, cultural infiltration. It was all about... Uh, you know, essentially what later the the Frankfurt School, which after, uh, you know, Gramsci said that you have to approach this uh, like a cultural in- infiltration revolution. That was when they went and set up shop in Frankfurt, Germany. They started the Frankfurt School. And of course, we know, you know, Afhaven to culture, can- cancel culture, this whole idea of a cultural revolution and, uh, you know, color revolutions really does come from, I mean, in part Maoist as well. but. The Frankfurt School was very instrumental in a lot of that. So, yeah, and that was about 1923. So, yeah. So, and um, I don't think it's uh, it's obviously not a coincidence that the increase in all all of these sort of methods of propaganda and, and individuals coming together to create propaganda, it's all happening around the time that the First World War happens, and then leading up and all through the Second World War. I don't think that's any coincidence at all. That no, it's <laughs> right. not. That was the purpose. Mm-hmm. That was the absolutely the purpose. I do want to back up. So Karl Marx, actually, interestingly, I I I don't know if you're familiar. He has a direct tie to the occult. Uh, so I, I thought of it when I was thinking about, you know, the Communist Manifesto because he was actually commissioned. So the Illuminati had a couple of offshoots. So they were officially, quote unquote, shut down. And then there was an offshoot. It became the League of the Outlaws. And then from there, there was another offshoot. It was called the League of the Just, which were kind of like, the you know, the predecessors to today's social justice warriors. They were League of Just Men. And then from there, there was the Communist League. And Engels was at the helm of the Communist League. Uh, Marx and Engels helmed the League of the Just. And he wrote this uh, manifesto for the Communist League, Engels did. And it was a compilation of essentially Adam Weishaupt's uh, Illuminati manifesto and Clinton Roosevelt, who is related to President Roosevelt. He was a cousin, yep. 
uh, Clinton Roosevelt's book. It was the science of government founded on natural law. And it was kind of a hybrid of those two. So they, they have been accused of plagiarizing, but they were commissioned to do it. And then Marx's name it wasn't even initially on it at first. It, they did a whole publicity campaign for him, had him, write, you know, commissioned him to write several articles on related topics. And then a few years later, they added Karl Marx's name to it. So, yeah. Was there a reason? So then, do, you, do you know that they wanted to build up like the mythology of, of Karl Marx? Like, why do you know why was he sort of inserted as the face of this afterwards? You know, I don't know too much except that he was like very, like he was a good figurehead for all of this. So I don't know essentially why they wanted to prop him up. I don't know enough about his family history. I should dive into that actually. Could just be that beard. Um, you know, it's very commanding. No, I, I think it was his family background um, that he was, yeah, he had ties, but I just don't know enough to know. Um, I do know he was a, a like self-avowed Satanist. He used to write odes to Satan. So I do know that, but you know, I don't know much beyond that why they picked him, but I, I think it was more just the well, circles. Well, the odes to Satan and, probably didn't hurt. <laughs> probably not a bad I'm resume sure. builder. <laughs> Yeah, and Angles uh, was a, a benefactor and worked with him. So I, I think it was kind of they were being groomed for it, but I don't know enough about family history. And I, I suspect it had to do with that. Uh, it also, I do know part of it was his own ambitions. I mean, he was, mm -hmm. he wanted to be a leader. He wanted to be, I mean, essentially, he just wanted to, you know, be funded and to, you know, go around speaking about what he wanted to speak about. So, um, but I, beyond that, I don't know why they picked him. So it was created for the purposes of the whole purpose of the Wellington House, the Pro Propaganda Bureau, was to create propaganda to engage uh, the American populace and the British to engage in the First World War on the side of the Brits. And this was a, a challenge in the United States because uh, Wilson actually ran on the campaign that he would not engage in the First World War. And it's almost so a red flag they, nowadays if a, if a president engage, you know, if you run on not wanting to engage in war, like, oh, there might just be a war when that guy jumps into power. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so they, uh, they set up what was called the Creel Commission and they had Bernays and Lippmann as Walter Lippmann, who was a journalist, at the, he, he started like the Daily Mail um, and they had him uh, to start to set, sorry helm up this uh, Creel Commission under George Creel, um, who was an interesting character. He later went into film. He started a bunch of propaganda campaigns. But at this time, this was to advise Wilson. And one of the things they did was weaponize the term isolationist. And we saw this, you know, later, um, you know, under several presidents, but definitely under Ron Paul most say, recently. Yeah. Yeah. Ties right into uh, that was the old doc himself. Exactly. So that was a, a huge tactic because, you know, they, they recognized that America was, they were very resistant to engaging in the war um, and to uh, supporting the war at all. And so that was the purpose of this British Propaganda Bureau at the Wellington House. It was to engage in World War One and to get the public to support it and uh, on the side of the British. Uh, so, of course, Bernays is uh, the double nephew of Sigmund Freud. What is a double and, nephew, by the way? <laughs> so, on both sides. Oh. 
Yeah, so like mother and father's so side some, of the family. There's some, weird, there's some weird stuff going on there. I yeah. Guess. And then uh Probably not probably nephew. also not a coincidence. I no, I don't think so. <laughs> and then his nephew is the uh founder of today's modern propaganda machine known as Netflix. And uh his name is Mark Randolph Bernays. And he, was also. he do you know was he one of the initial founders? Like, even yeah. from the beginning, because, you know, when Netflix first started, it was just like, we mail you DVDs. And I was like, this is awesome. I don't got to go to the store. This is fantastic. But now it is, now it produces clearly, like, it's its own propaganda. So it just makes me wonder, like, long-term strategy here. Like, first, we'll just mail them DVDs. And then eventually, they'll trust us. And we'll yeah, just start making well, our own stuff. Yeah, they, I mean, things do evolve. You can't, like, always say that it's long-term foresight. But they, the founders of Tavistock were... Uh, Fabian socialists mm-hmm. and the Fabian socialists are, you know, their whole model is a plan the of incrementalism. Game. Yeah, uh, it's incrementalism. So their uh, their coat of arms is the wolf in sheep's clothing. So this uh, is a, a reference to the dialectic, right? Yeah. So it's a, you know, you have the the right hand that looks like it's the uh, the sheep. You know, it's uh, the friend, and it is really it's just the the wolf underneath that's. Uh, progressing towards the same goal. And it becomes and your friend you, by just mailing you DVDs innocently at first. And next thing you know, it's like well, they're your go-to for any documentary or anything. I mean, I, I watch a ton of documentaries on Netflix too, so. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. And then, uh, the but their mascot is the tortoise, which is, mm. uh, you know, after the model of incremental. It's really on the, the nose. Like we are taking yeah. our time, clearly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that was uh, the so the Creole Commission and their machine. Yeah. So they to sway and they weaponized the term isolationist. And that was then in 1928. Um, Bernays said those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. So. Uh, that that was their their plan. That was the agenda. I, I also want to read uh, John Rawling Reese, who was one of the founders of the Tavistock Institute, or not founders, one of the uh, original directors. And I have two quotes by him: uh, "The Tavistock method, which induces control stress via what he calls psychologically controlled environments, in order to make people give up their firmly held beliefs under peer pressure." And then here's the other one that I think is so instrumental. Um, Okay, so he says, uh, he says, if we are to infiltrate the professional and social activities of other people, I think we must imitate the totalitarians and organize some kind of fifth column activity. If better ideas on mental health are to progress and spread, we as the salesmen must lose our identity. Let us all, therefore, be very secretly fifth columnists. And this was in the, the Mental Health Journal, uh, Volume 1, Number 4, October 1940. He was one of the early directors when it became uh, the Tavistock Medical uh, Clinic. So, it's funny because if you go to Wiki- Wikipedia and look up Tavistock, all the stuff that you, you bring up there, I mean, they don't lay it out the way you are, obviously, but it's all all briefly mentioned as conspiracies about Tavistock include, <laughs> and then it's it's everything, you know, everything you would think. Is it really? But all they really it's say just... is conspiracies include. They don't really like, 
say why they're just conspiracies. They, you know, they bring up John Coleman to, to call him a conspiracy theorist. He's, he's done a lot of writing about Tavistock, but that's, it's very, obviously, as you can imagine, it's Wikipedia. It doesn't really go deep on this stuff. That is funny. Well, John Coleman did, uh, he, he wrote the book and that is now actually, I'm sure they've revised it and edited it, but I did finally get a hard copy because they finally uh, sold it for, I think it was like $30 versus $5,000. Because uh, I had the printout somewhere, like I actually printed out the PDF because I wasn't going to spend five thousand dollars on the book. Uh, but now I think Amazon is selling it for a reasonable price, and I did get the cheap. Copy. Yeah, I'm just going to read this one little section from from Wikipedia, and, yeah. and it's funny because they cite here it says the Tavistock Institute is associated with conspiracy theories, the most common of which associated with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. We'll get there. Two books focusing on this are it lists a couple of these books by uh, Dan, John Coleman, Daniel Esselin, and then it's funny because they're. Their defense, in their defense, they cite the rough guide to conspiracy theories, whatever that is. It sounds like an establishment. Here's why things aren't really conspiracies book to me. Uh, notes that the Tavistock Institute has been named by some conspiracy theorists as having a part in the most extravagant anti-Illuminati conspiracy theory ever of John Coleman known as the Aquarian Conspiracy. But they just dismiss it as a conspiracy. There's no real, you know, that's it. Right. That's the whole section well, pretty much. Well, I mean... There, there's direct evidence. You just have to look at the document, the Changing Images of Man, which was a Tavistock uh, and a Stanford Research Institute uh, operation. And that was all about the age of Aquarius um, and how we're going to change the images of man. It, le- all leads it all leads back to, back to yeah. Satan. Pretty much. Excellent YouTube comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right, there you go. Um, pretty much. And I have that document as well. But that is all about how we have to change Look, just the title, the change, changing images of man uh, into the age of Aquarius, and the, that that's not a theory. That so that's interesting. What I was going to say is that I I've read uh, Colm's book. That was my introduction to Tavistock. I read Esselin's book. They there's a lot of overlap. Esselin does a lot of quoting of Coleman. Um, Coleman doesn't have any sources that he cites. Uh, you know, it's mostly just uh, his sources because he's a former MI6 mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, my defense of that, I know people are very critical of him for that reason. My defense of that is that a lot of times when people have access to secret libraries, uh, typically if they get clearance because they are former intelligence or, you know, they've been able to get clearance for whatever reason, you know, you can't just walk into a lot of these libraries. Like, you have to get clearance to go in. But when you do, uh, you can take notes. You can't take pictures. You can't... Uh, you can't take anything with you. So that where he got his so, information about about Tavistock because he had access to these like MI6 secret libraries that only people with certain clearance can get into. Partially, and then partially sources like people right. who people he knows. He intelli- that exactly. he obviously can't be naming. Exactly, mm-hmm. but when you go into these libraries, then you walk out. Even your notes get redacted. They go through your notes, and then they'll <laughs> they redact. just take that black marker. <laughs> yep. So I, I know like people have been very critical and I, I've uh, had a lot of these conversations like I don't trust Coleman at all. And that's fair. That's valid. You know, I'm not telling you to. But in his defense, I, I, that is, I, I think that's the reason why he doesn't have tons of sources. Hmm. But all this to say that most of, as much as, you know, I really did like his work and that was my introduction to Tavistock, most of the research that I've done is from Tavistock right. itself. Right. So I think it's, you know, it's comical that they're saying. You don't need the like, theories. You can just read their own stuff. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm like, they tell you, I mean, I'm reading John Rollin Reese's quotes. I'm reading mm-hmm. Bernays quotes. Right. Like this isn't like, Oh, uh, this is some theory. This is like from the horse's mouth. It's what they've said. I mean, I read these documents, like the Tavistock approach to understanding what happens in organizations. This is like the beginning of, you know, you all can of download the- it from their website as a PDF. Like, exactly. <laughs> this is like all, this is the genesis of all these public private partnerships that mm-hmm. we are seeing today. In fact, there was a direct quote about that. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, but essentially saying that we have to merge, you know, the, the corporations with the governments and to create this kind of new type of government and how they're going to do it. And they did it all through the creation of organizational psychology and group psychology, group dynamic research is how we got to these, you know, conglomerate corporations that are essentially quasi-governments, international, supranational entities today. Um, so is this where all these experiments that we always hear about, like the Milgram experiment, uh, yep, you mentioned Pavlov from earlier, like this all comes from the same, like, because the Milgram stuff, it's like, who even thinks to do this? You know, it's like yeah. some of the stuff. And well, now we know, we know who thinks to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what one of the, when I was talking about the Fabian socialists, so the reason I brought that up is most of the, uh, you know, origins of Tavistock do come from the Fabian socialists. You know, that a lot of the, the funding and the founders, uh, Milner was one of the original uh, backers, even back in Wallington House days, uh, Lord uh, Northcliffe and Rothmere, Rothschilds, Rockefeller. Uh, Rockefeller later gives a big rant that makes it. That into- answers an earlier comment that I'm going to put up. We were yeah. asked, "Is Rothschild connected?" Of course he, of course he is. Come on, easy one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so now, okay. if we find out Rothbard is connected to Tavistock, you're going to get some people really up in arms. But uh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, not as far as I know. <laughs> I think that one's safe from from this. I mean, maybe maybe not at some point. I don't know. Um, Today's episode is sponsored by Fox and Sons Coffee. And let me just tell you, Stephen of Fox and Sons, he is not just an advertiser. He has been a supporter of this show from day one. And frankly, since before day one, because he came over with me from the old Lions and Liberty days. So true fan of the show. He started this company, Fox and Sons, out of his love for coffee and really out of wanting to further bond with his sons and spend time with him, just like he shared time with his father drinking coffee. Uh, He also gets to teach his sons about entrepreneurship entrepreneurship and business through this endeavor. So I'm so happy to have Stephen and really his whole family, the Fox and the Sons, the whole gang as a supporters and sponsors of this show. Not only that, his beans are so high quality, fresh. Look, I just got two new bags right here. I got the Mexican and my favorite, the Den Blend Dark. The beans are super high quality, fresh and sourced from small organic farms, fair trade. None of this GMO garbage. They're all small batch roasted. This is high quality stuff. Subscriptions are by far the best way to get your coffee. I have a couple subscriptions going, uh, but that is the way to go. You never run out that way. I never run out. I always have my supply of Fox & Sons. So I want you to head over to foxandsons.com. Put in your order today. They ship fast. They ship now through the end of February. Also, by the way, you're going to get free shipping on any order over $37.99. By the way, while you're there, use discount code MCS to get 18% off any order over $25. Stephen Fox is a great man, a great friend, great supporter of the show. I encourage you to check out his coffee over at foxandsons.com. So, okay. So 1920 is when the Tavistock Clinic 
uh, sorry, so it, the, the name changes. And the, uh, it was, the name came from a couple of places. One, it was actually in the like square of Tavistock, the location, but it was also the 11th Duke of Bedford, uh, who was known as the Duke of Tavistock. And, uh, he had some interesting connections as well. He was the Marquis of Tavistock, sorry, the, or 11th Duke of Tavistock. He donated a specific building uh, for the purposes of doing shell shock therapy research. So we now call this post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but that he, it was specifically designated to do that research. And this is an interesting connection. So he, he was Herbert author, Arthur Russell, and he was related to the founder of Skull and Bones who in 1832 was William William Huntington Russell, who, along with Alfonso Taft, who was, of course, related to President Taft, founded Skull and Bones. Uh, He was also, so this Herbert Arthur Russell, who was the Marquis of Tavistock, was also an Order of St. John, the Knight of Grace, Order of Garter, Order of British Empire, and Order of Fellow of Royal Society. So it's also worth noting that... uh, the Wellington House was kind of a, an offshoot of the uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs. That's kind of a, one, you know, the, the other a sister branch, I guess, or right. brainchild of it. Um, so, yeah, so these this shell shock therapy research that they were doing uh, very much is like a progenitor to the MK Ultra experiments. Mm-hmm. And I really think Tavistock paved the way for MK Ultra. I don't know that MK Ultra could have happened without all of the testing and the research that was done at uh, Tavistock. Bovey and Sargent were also conducting similar research at Mosley Hospital under Mapother Institute of Psychiatry, and theirs was uh, insulin therapy shock. And what were those? Insulin what were those therapy. shell shock experiments like? What can you describe? What you've uncovered about those? They would traumatize doing all sorts of. Uh, different kinds like electric shock therapy and it was uh, was this done to like mental patients was this in the under the cover of so oh this, we, we got some new methods we want to try out so they the the public explanation was that they were doing this with soldiers and that they were testing you know post traumatic stress like which they call shell shock like we're about uh, to send these guys to get bombed so you know this isn't that bad we're just we're just going to fuck with them in right. the room but you know, very similar to like what happened in uh, MK Ultra. You know, that's in, with MK Ultra, people thought that it was just, you know, people who were really sick or, you know, totally mentally uh, incapacitated, you know, like very, uh, you know, very severe type of uh, psychopathy. But the reality was, and I, I know this from talking to some people and, or to some people's children firsthand, mm-hmm. that it would be things like, not always. I mean, some of those cases may have been, you know, it might be true, but there were people who had like a headache and would go in and then they would conduct these horrific experiments on them. Like that was enough to oh, drink, th- drink this tea with acid in it and we'll, and we'll torture him. We'll psychologically torture you. That might help. <laughs> or an Advil. I don't, I don't know. Either one. It, Excedrin? I, I don't know. Get some sleep. I, I, There's yeah. a long list of things I think I'd try for a headache before before psychological torture, but that's just me. I, that's just me. But yeah, I so no, I. They, it, but it was under the guise of uh, experimenting with soldiers that they were trying to help the soldiers. That was 
you know, the public uh, front. So then 1933, Kurt Lewin immigrates to the United States and he was a puppet of Cecile. Uh, Cyril Burt works for the Tavistock Clinic and he was trained by William McDougall and uh, who was a part of the Society for Psychical Research, which was found, that was founded all the way back in 1882 by the Cecile, who were a part of the Hermetic, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. So we have all of these occult ties again. There's also Order of Secret Service of uh, Propagandists who use an image of the spiritualist uh, oh, sorry, the spiritualist occultics or skeptics as cover. To Everyone's in use. an order of something. All yes. Makes They're me feel really lame. I'm not, I'm in no orders of anything. I am not either. I'm, I'm very lucky. Start our, uh, the order of podcasters. That's what we're going to start. It, should we start that? The, it, it just started. The Royal Order of Podcasters. <laughs> the Royal today. Order of Podcasters. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they were part of all sorts of orders. And then also, that this, yeah, I could list it's a pretty long order of, of uh, societies. But this one is worth noting the British Eugenic Society and President of Mensa. So, Mensa, I don't know if they still do, but up until really recently, they actually had a page specifically designated on their website for eugenics. That was actually the purpose of Mensa. So there's there's positive eugenics, there's negative eugenics. Of course, the notion of positive eugenics is this idea that uh, certain people should breed with each other to propagate the types of genes that they'd like to see. Wait, uh, is Mensa just a dating site? Is that what this is now? Is it, are they just trying to find the smart people and then hook them up? Well, I don't think that's quite I'm probably oversimplifying, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I but get them in the same that's... get them in the same area, get them in the same region. Say, all right, we found the smart people, and the smart people. I imagine the smart people, how you might want to say it, are probably both. Well, I, I would think are both better at crafting propaganda and also better at following it in some ways, depending on your perspective. Yeah, they're they're more indoctrinated typically. <laughs> right, right. Yes, that is accurate. Do uh, you know if they have an, if if the, if the invention of the IQ test itself is even is in Involved in this whole thing, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, it was it was part that, that of the up. social scientists, and it mm -hmm. it was did come out of uh, Tavistock. So there's the Stanford Binet, and then there's the Waste. Uh, so there are different types of tests. Um, the ancients would say people were possessed, but these occult people say. I don't know if there's a rest of a comment chat. I, I, that's why I put yeah. it up. I was like, maybe I'll see the rest if I put it up. <laughs> right, we, yeah. we eagerly await part two of that comment. Oh, uh, yeah. No, no worries. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was part of... Because, so the negative eugenics is the, the idea of, you know, the useless eater. And so that's also interesting too. The Tavistock Institute, uh, back even from the early days, like the Wellington House, was uh, very influenced by Spangler's work. And uh, I'm going to mispronounce her name, but it's Coria Moylan Walsh. And uh, uh, Walsh was, uh, she wrote her book, I think it was 1917, and Spangler was 1918. And Walsh was very much like one of the early Malthusians. That was the whole premise of her book. Um, <laughs> it's a live show, uh, people. I'm going to hit my microphone sometimes. <laughs> it happens to me all the time. Um, yeah, so, the, so it's very much uh, predicated on those types of principles. And Spangler, of course, wrote the whole book on the decline of the West. Um, and that, that seems to be very much what they were engaged 
in doing. Uh, so then what do we have next? We have uh, 1943. Uh, we have Tavistock Group formed, controlled by uh, Russell, Cecile, Poor Parson, Carnegie Mellon, Spencer Families. And Tavistock Group had lots of offshoots. So I couldn't keep track of all of them. I've tried like doing research on Tavistock Group so many times. And there's just tons and tons of like offshoots. Someone needs to make a, just a giant infographic at just Tavistock alone. I know Tavistock is in a lot of infographics I've seen, but it can probably justify its own with all its little offshoots. You could. Um, and I, I'm probably not going to find it now for whatever reason, but there was a quote from, yeah, I found it right here. During the, it was at the Tavistock Group, uh, medical school in 1961. So it's a little bit later. But this is the famous Huxley quote. He says, people will have, people will in fact have their liberties taken away from them, but will rather enjoy it because they will be distracted from any desire to rebel by propaganda or brainwashing or pharmacological enhanced methods. It's, it's you'll, you'll own nothing and you'll never be happier. <laughs> exactly. Just, it's the earlier iteration. I mean, this it's almost the new. exact same thing. Yeah. It, no, this is totally not new. And Tavistock was very instrumental in not just those crafting those ideas and uh, promulgating them, but also in doing the beta test to see how they would work. So I really, that's, I think that was really kind of the core of what they did. They were doing all of these testing on people so they could essentially induce trauma-based mind control. <laughs> um, on, and yeah. eventually, ultimately, on us, on the masses, you know, you, you try it out right. in a, you know, you try it out with some soldier or what have you, and then you know, yeah. you extrapolate that to a group setting, and then at some point, the group setting becomes Netflix. <laughs> you know, it becomes all of the propaganda that we see. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the uh, these they start with these, like you said, the soldiers. Like the same thing happened with MK Ultra. It was like they do these testing on these individual. And then what do we see? So many of those same tactics then got weaponized uh, across the masses for the purposes of mass scale trauma-based mind control. I, I think, you know, so many of the, I, we could say a lot of these uh, events, you know, like I would classify COVID, I would say 9-11, JFK. Uh, these are like, trauma-inducing experiences, mm -hmm. but for the masses. And I, I think that was the purpose. And they also do a lot of this, these tactics where, you know, they induce a trauma and you feel like you're being choked and then they release. And mm -hmm. we saw this with COVID. It's yeah. a really good oh, example. Yeah. And then they clamp back down. This right. is a part of their strategy. This is why, yeah. and people call me black-pilled and, and whatnot, but I, I, try not, I, you know, I, I try to tell people, whatever you were doing in response to COVID to improve your life and improve your situation so that you're not subject to the things that are going to happen, um, don't stop doing that just because you think it, it wound down or you think that it's, you know, whatever those things may be, and that's its own show and or own 20 hours of conversation, but uh, don't stop just because it feels like there's a little less pressure right now. This is, exactly. the, this is the strategy. This is part of it. Is exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, so then we have, I guess we're going to the 1940s and uh, let's see, what did we have in 1940? It was around 1946, 1947, where the Rockefellers give a big grant. Then they, they transition, they become uh, the uh, Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. So they 
It became Tavistock Clinic from the Wellington House, British Propaganda Bureau, and it was known as British Propaganda Bureau, also known as Life Factory. And then, so at the Wellington House, and then they go to Tavistock Clinic. Man, I uh, wish they stuck with Life Life Factory. That was such a good branding. I mean, (laughs) very strong. It just, it encompasses, there's no question what's going on here. Now we have to, we wouldn't have to do these multi-hour shows explaining this stuff if if they just called it Live Factory, you know, we'd be done. I mean, just say what it is. Although I feel like they were a little more truthful back then than they are now. Um, you know, like Edward Bernays would say, because it, part of what came out of Tavistock were techniques like polling. And he, they, Edward Bernays would say that it's a manufacturing consent or, or public opinion making. That's what he called polling, mm-hmm. you know, whereas mm-hmm. today they, they try to mislead you into or convince you that polling is this honest kind of survey and, but it's not. Right. Well, and they act like the poll they- is, is going to predict what's going to happen based on what all the people are saying, but it's actually meant to create what's going to happen based on what they want you to think everybody thinks, which would inform what you think. Exactly. Well, as I was saying, you know, it's really easy to predict future when you've planned it. Right. And they are futurists, so they plan the future. And uh, that's why they're so good at predicting it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But, but I feel like they were a little bit more honest back then. Uh, so then they had a couple. So they've got several that, as you were noticing, they have so many different offshoots and so many different tentacles. So there was Tavistock Clinic and then there was the Tavistock uh, Medical... Uh, yeah, medical psychology. Uh, that was in 1930. They have all these different names. Um, and they could, they were really trying to establish themselves as like being very science based mm-hmm. and having some sort of a medical kind of component. And they weren't. I mean, they, it, this is the, or this is the genesis of social science, which is not a hard science. It is not a, I would argue it's not really a science. Um, I mean, the term science is is kind of part of the propaganda there. It's like, let's put the word science on all this stuff. And then suddenly it's, look, we're just, we're basically just doctors, you know, we're just in a lab, you know, with our beakers and we're figuring stuff out. That's, that's perfectly innocent. And this is, you know, I've gotten a lot of pushback because when I say things, sometimes, uh, you know, people say, you're just like, you know, discrediting the entire field of uh, social science, psychology. and that's not my right, right. That's not my intention. I mean, I I recognize most people who go into this field are good, decent people who want to help others, and many, in fact, have done tremendous good and have helped tremendous, like tons of people. However, that doesn't negate the fact that a lot of the people who are involved in the creation of the field we see definitely had occult ties. <coughs> they were, they did really perceive themselves to be wizards. I mean, people like. Even Jung and Carl and uh, Freud and these early psychologists were very infatuated with uh, mystical and hermetic mm-hmm. principles. I mean, Carl Jung especially. I mean, he I, when I saw him, his association with Tavistock, I, I was just like, oh yeah, of course, uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, and Carl Jung, I mean, look, these Carl Jung is a lot is very revered, I think, in a lot of circles. I mean, there's the Jordan Peterson Carl Jung sort of connection yep. interpretations and whatnot. Um, but man, I mean, if, if you're looking for occult connections, go no further than, than Carl Jung. I mean, they're, they're galore. I mean, to the extent he was practicing and engaging in like Kundalini yoga, trying to, you know, make the spirit rise and all this, all this stuff. 
Yeah. And he was also a double agent. His number was 488 and he was a double agent for the SS and the OSS. So, yeah. no, I, And that's not to say that you, I think people, I always say if people spend as much time adjudicating information as they did vilifying or glorifying sources, we'd be in a very different place because broken clock is right twice a day, you know? Um, so mm-hmm. it's not to say that everything he said or did was wrong or bad. Uh, there, there were a lot of valid uh, concepts that he, sure. uh, you know, put forth. Uh, same thing I would argue for Freud, less for Freud, honestly. I, I think I like Jung actually a little bit more than Freud. Um, but yeah, I, so, but they well, were. Freud is just they, like, everyone wants to fuck their mom. That's pretty much, that, pretty that's, much that's it. Freud, yeah, so. that, that was basically, in a nutshell, that he reduced everything to Oedipus Complex. Right. Um but they were both very obsessed with things like wanting to read people's minds and control the mind. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the power was in the therapist and, you know, taking that power away from the person, away from the self. And uh, Freud was more obsessed with drugs. I mean, he was a huge fan of cocaine and did a lot of experimenting with his uh, patients with cocaine. Yeah, so... All right, where are I'm we? just picturing this guy just, you know, on his desk, just doing lines of cocaine and just furiously typing on his typewriter like, oh, yeah, they they just want to fuck their mothers. That's it. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of lazy. I mean, really. And when you think about it that way, it's like, okay, I don't have to do any more work. We're not going to do any actual science where we, you know, put forth hypotheses and test them. We, I'm just, just going to get coked up and say this thing. And then, you know, hey, I got a PhD, by the way. Oh, yeah, we invented those. But anyway, this proves that I'm right. Pretty much. That doesn't seem to be how, how this went. Um, but yeah, I do want to just, you know, preface that. It's not that everything is... Uh, I'm not attacking everybody in the field. I'm not saying that sure. there no good has ever been done by it. I think like, like anything else, I mean, to use the kind of maybe, you know, beaten down uh, gun analogy though. I mean, it's, it's a weapon and you can use a gun to defend yourself. And a lot of people do. So a weapon can be used for, for bad or good. I'm sure that Absolutely. in the creation and invention of like, this field of psychology, a lot of people uncovered a lot of true things that if used in a certain way to inform people about why they're thinking this or that, it can certainly help them at the same, but that's not why these people were generally <laughs> inventing it right. and using it. So take it exactly. for what you will. And ultimately, I just can't seem to escape the further I dig into this, that it, it looks like they were trying to create a secular, perhaps occult, uh, you know, solutions to spiritual problems. Mm-hmm. You know, it, prior to that, people did deal with, uh, you know, what they now call mental health in very different ways. But taking it out of that realm uh, out of the spiritual realm, or I guess you could consider occult means kind of spiritual, but taking it out of uh, a uh, more light spiritual type of uh, a realm, communal type of, uh, you know, fa- familial communal type of environment or religious environment. Well, yeah, or, are- or what maybe back in the day, and I mean, still now, I mean, someone in the chat mentioned too, like, you know, what might have been accomplished by a priest and maybe even yeah, something exactly. as extreme as an exorcism um, yeah. might now just be accomplished with, uh, you know, whatever the hell these guys are doing inside these places and not accomplished, but may, probably probably made worse depending on, you now these are, these are rabbit holes we can go down here, but um, yeah, it's, right. it's, it's spiritual well, no I, matter how you look at it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would argue in many cases it did make things worse. And in some cases, I think that that's kind of, you know, that is the, 
that's the framework. It's the milieu because what what happens when you're drawing somebody into a mystical environment that is, you know, perhaps darker than one would want it to be. Um, so I, again, I'm not I'm not projecting that onto all. I'm just saying that that you have to look at the the origins, and it does look like that there's a lot of that there. So they were very involved in, uh, you know, of course, the arts and that you were saying Rolling Stones, Beatles. But even before that, you know, we started with the literary figures. And this isn't new. I mean, since uh, ancient times, they have used the arts for propaganda purposes uh, because it's really effective. But they did start with Tavistock, started with these literary figures and created that whole, uh, you know, uh, symposium where they had them all write all these pamphlets and articles. And then they moved into radio. And I think it was 1937, uh, Cadrill who was actually roommates at Dartmouth with uh, uh, Rockefeller. He became the head of, uh, what was it, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, Rockefeller-funded Office of Radio and Research at Princeton. And uh, he had partnered with uh, Gordon Alport to co-author The Psychology of Radio. And it, it was Cantrell who did this, The uh, it, it was called, they, when he published the study, it was called The Invasion of Mars. But it was based on the war of the, the H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds uh, experiment, right? And by the way, talk about like shocking shell shock. By the way, yeah. I mean, we for for whatever reason that H.G. Wells War of the Worlds thing has become myth- mythologized into this like, oh, what a funny thing they did, faking this alien. Like people died, dude. Like this was like traumatic. I mean, they were intentionally trying to make pe- people think aliens were invading the world and killing people. I mean, and we it's, it's looked back on so whimsically now, at least at least in pop culture. And it's actually like, what? That we're okay with this? I know. And I, I've heard people tell me like they don't even think it happened, that it's just PSYOP. I'm like, I don't think so. What I do think is interesting is that uh, Rockefeller didn't let him publish it right away. They they held it for a couple of years. So it wasn't actually published until 1940. Huh. Which is a few years after. You mean like the results of of what they found for how people acted yeah, and whatnot. The, Maybe yeah. they wanted to pump the brakes for a minute. They're like, some people are kind of pissed off about this thing. Maybe we just hold the paper a minute. I, you know, I don't know what it was. I, I I'm I haven't read the Invasion of Mars, and I, I think I'm going to. I just looked it up actually uh, today to see about getting it. I haven't read it, and I should. That might give me more insight to why they shut it down. Uh, I know what the results were. But I do. Th- I thought that was interesting. They, of course, then move into... So before that, I had mentioned Creel, right? George Creel. And he moved into the film industry. He created a lot of propaganda for um, the... Um, what's it called? You know, obviously for World War One. you know, to uh, get people to want Recruiting to... Recruiting propaganda and, they, and whatnot. Yeah. And then the... But then for World War Two, I, I would blank on what the name this campaign was, but he was involved in a lot of the, uh, like, picture campaign, you know, like the Uncle Sam, We Want You. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and he created a whole uh, film commission and pictorial commission. Oh, it was called Beat the Promise. Mm. That's what it was mm-hmm. called. Um, and that was for World War Two. So they, of course, the Tavistock did this radio, um, you know, psychology of radio, and then they moved into psychology of television. Uh, not too long after that was a. Uh, I'm trying to find what year that was, but 
that was a, a Tavistock. So after the radio, you know, they had to experiment and see how television would do. We don't really need to, we, we know they do this with film, obviously. Uh, they now do this kind of with the, uh, the CIA has a film liaison division. I mean, they're pretty public about it. And now it. since 2013, I forget the name of the, you probably know it, but th- they changed that law uh, where you used to only be able to use propaganda on foreign citizens Smith. and foreign governments. Was it? Smith-Munt Act. That's right, the Smith-Munt Act, and, and Obama changed it. So actually, you can use propaganda on U.S. citizens too. Yeah. So who knows what we've, I mean, we know we've been, we know we're propagandized anyway through film and radio and whatnot, uh, but that more recent change makes it just like we don't even have to bother pretending it's not pretty much. Exactly, yeah. No, they Now they can just, they can just totally legally do this uh, weaponized against the people. Um. Yeah, so what was it? Max Max was the one of the Rockefeller financiers, and he assured the social science will concern themselves with the rationalization of social control, the control of human behavior. So it was interesting because uh, it was uh, Max Mason along with uh, Alan Gregg who really pushed the Rockefellers to get into the field of psychiatry. Uh, and it wasn't very popular at the time. You know, there was actually a whole anti-psychiatry movement. Uh, people did not think there was any merit to the field. People did not think that it was a lucrative field. And it was Alan Gregg. I searched to try and figure out why Alan Gregg would be interested in this. It turns out that Alan Gregg's mentor was Abraham Flexner. Abraham Flexner was, of course, who you know, of the Flexner brothers, who was commissioned by the Rockefellers in 1910 to... Uh, create the report presented to Congress that would uh, bring about the advent of allopathic medicine to uh, discredit and defund any, uh, you know, naturopathic, holistic, and homeopathic medicine. So this is when that turnover where all of the schools would only be funded if they had some sort of pharmaceutical component and there would be no licensure without a pharmaceutical or pharmacological uh, components. So if of the solution this, doesn't include here's these drugs, then you're out of the club. Basically, yeah. So it was and Greg who really, really pushed for them to get into psychiatry, which was very instrumental uh, for Tavistock because uh, that became, you know, kind of the uh, the when they moved into the Tavistock Medical Clinic and uh, you know the Tavistock Medical uh, Psychology arm, and of course the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. They were. Uh, conducting all of these psychiatric experiments. And this, uh, you know, becomes later when we have all of these uh, drug experiments, you know, like the LSD, uh, of course, the the Grateful Dead, the producer for the Grateful Dead was uh, uh, Alan Trist, right? He mm-hmm. was the son of Eric Trist, who was one of the psycho- psychiatrists for, who was the forerunner for Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. And now, now here's the part where we start to, to ruin, ruin some people's favorites, I think. I'm sorry. I was never much of a dead guy, so I, I'm fine. But <laughs> I actually went to a dead concert really? six months. Yeah, six months before Jerry Garcia died. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was one of the last ones at Madison Square Garden. So it was pretty fun. Is that? I, I'm just curious. It's just like a, a side tangent. As you've, uh, I, I'm sure, as you learn more about propaganda and and do all this research that you do, you probably just continue to run into things that you've loved or were a fan of or music. And and uh, I try to like ride the line as much as I can. I try to sort of 
still enjoy my normie life and not be tainted too yeah. much by the stuff I, I find. But I'm curious what, what all that does it affect your enjoyment of, of things like, like music that you later realized was created just to propagandize you? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. So music, not so much. I feel like music I can still really enjoy. Um, yeah, I, I, had, I had a friend ask when I when I w- went to their house and I was like, he was asking what kind of music I like to listen to. And I said, like, pretty much, you know, CIA music. <laughs> right. Like, that all music? They do great so stuff. Like, yeah, that's why it's effective, because it's good. Um, I, I think so the one that hit me the most personally was uh, was when finding out the Doors the Doors stuff. I mean, and, and that's there's a huge ties in there to Aldous Huxley and the, and yeah. and um, and I guess Doors of Perception. Yeah, 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 and then Jim Morrison's dad was like part of the 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 Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's just a lot there. It's like oh, not Jim Morrison. He seemed, but in the in the Oliver Stone movie, none of this was mentioned. <laughs> You're like, wait, they left all that out. Right. <laughs> Yeah, the whole Laurel Canyon connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the I so music, I kind of that that doesn't bother me so much. I think I have a harder time with how much of you know when I look back at a lot of like film, television, and stuff that I really enjoyed, and I didn't realize at the time how strong the uh, feminist agenda was, mm-hmm. and I I had never thought I was a feminist, but when I look back at like most of the shows that I was really, uh, you know, huge fan of, you know, things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like I thought that they should have cast me. I mean, they, I didn't audition, but they should have found me. Right, it was right. A role for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like Sex in the City. You know, I look back at all of these things and I see how much it influenced. It influenced me in ways that I don't think I was fully aware. Sure. And it didn't just influence me, but in, influenced and impacted the culture around me who were also, you know, it was a compound effect. Sure. I mean, what was so, what was the message of sex in the city? If not, don't get married. You're, you're a powerful woman. So stay single. Keep being sexy into your 40s and 50s and just fuck a, a bunch of men your whole life. That, I mean, that's well, that's the message. I'm, you left out, spend all your rent money oh, yeah, on Manola Lonnie. Of course, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was really important. Yeah. And I lived in New York City at the time. And let me tell you, I had friends who did that. They'd be like, I can't pay my rent because I bought Manola Lonnie and Jimmy Choose. I have to get this. your thoughts on this one. Uh, Emperor Fossey's new COVID one. <laughs> great, great name for me to say on uh, on YouTube. Uh, what was Jeannie from Ideum of Jeannie Tavistock? She hypnotized me. Ah, I don't know. I just assume everything is at this point. I mean, if it's not one hop away, it's three or four or seven or nine, but probably. Yeah, well, I I mean, what's a genie if not a a demon in a bottle, right? Right, right. I don't know if it directly was, but I I think the messaging is very much aligned with the messaging of Tavistock. I would say that, Mm -hmm. yeah. But I I can't say that they were directly getting, you know, oversight from uh, Tavistock. (laughs) And you know, Tavistock did uh, as one of the things that makes it hard is because this is how these things work. Is there, you know, it is like tentacles, and it, it, they create webs and there's nexuses. Mm-hmm. So it's that they have several brainchild uh, think tanks. Like they work very closely with the Rand Institute, the right. Stanford Research Institute, the Hudson Institute. And it's easy for any yeah. one organization to say, "No, that's not our, that's not us. We just write about this other thing." Or that's not. But if you just look at the actual people, uh, you don't need to make hops. Even it's, not, it's often the same people. Exactly. Yeah. 
Well, Courtney, I think I I know there's a lot more info we could dive into and maybe we'll do a second part because I think I I was thinking we could do this is a lot of the history and the backstory of sort of like how we got here. Um, Maybe we could do a whole nother part on just how Tavistock affects us today and where it's little where the tentacles currently lie. Uh, So I think you and I are going to jump into the smoke filled room and maybe get into some weird stuff in a minute. But uh, before that, of course, why don't you just let everybody know where they can find everything you're doing? I know you have the Courtney Turner podcast, but you got a lot of other projects as well. So feel free to uh, to name them all. All right. Well, uh, CourtneyTurner.com, probably the best place to find all things that I am working on. And I spell my name like Courtney. So it's C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y-T-U-R-N-E-R.com. Uh, we are gearing up to do another cause fest to combat Tavistock. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cause fest stands for uh, Creative Artists Uniting for the Sovereignty of Everyone. And so it is a platform for independent creative artists who have been, you know, most of them have been silenced, censored, uh, or they just don't want to bargain with the devil, which seems to be what you literally need to do in order to be a part of the mainstream music, Hollywood, uh, yeah, that whole industry. So, yeah, we're gearing up to do that again uh, in next in June, I think it's going to be. And, uh, yeah, I have several kind of like offshoot shows, but... The main one is Courtney Turner Podcast, and you can find all my stuff on my channel. So, yeah. All right, Courtney Turner. Well, it's always fun talking to you. And, you know, if I, if I need deep dive research on on something like this, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the one that's coming to mind. So thank you so much for coming on. And we'll circle back <laughs> to this topic. In the meantime, I'll see you in the smoke-filled room. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And remember, if you're listening here on the public feed, that means you're only getting about two-thirds of the conversation because every one of these interviews goes approximately 30 minutes longer in what is called the Smoke-Filled Room bonus segment. To get the complete version of every episode, just become a subscriber to The Mark Claire Show. You can do so on Patreon, on Subscribestar, on Rockfin. You can find all the links you need over at markclaire.com. That's markclaire, M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. Until next time, my friends, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.